And we'll read together Luke 19, beginning at verse 28, reading a fairly lengthy passage, this account of Jesus' entry into the city uh, on, the, on the, the week before his passion. And I really do want to uh, encourage you to uh, pay attention to the the juxtaposition of emotions in this passage, the contrast that there is, and the the setting side by side uh, of these experiences, these emotions. And I do want uh, particularly for you to pay attention to verse 41 of this passage. And so let's read together. Luke 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount which is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging 
on his words. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, in these next minutes, would you come by your spirit? And even as we have sung about these things and read about these things and prayed about these things, uh, now, Lord, would you, by your spirit's power, take these things and press them into our hearts again that we might see something of the wonder of who you are and the wonder of what you have done for us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Just a couple of brief comments related to the text, the passage. Um, it's really a striking passage. The the passage fulfills Old Testament prophecy, the untying of the colt and, and Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the colt fulfills Zechariah's prophecy concerning the king who would come riding on a colt on the foal of a donkey. The cries of the crowds in celebration of Jesus' entrance into the, into the city Those cries of celebration come from the psalm that we read, Psalm 118. Uh, Those verses toward the end of Psalm 118 include this phrase, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means, O Lord, save. Lord, come and save. And those crowds that were uttering those words, singing that song, if you will, though they didn't know it, were drawing not only their attention, but your attention and my attention and the attention of the whole of the church across all of the ages of the life of the church, all of the generations and centuries of the life of the church were drawing attention to that psalm and to the very last words of that psalm. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. I see it on magnets on people's refrigerators. I see it on greeting cards. And we've lost sight of the fact that Psalm 118 is a prophecy of the day when people will not go up to the horns of the altar rejoicing and singing and being bringing flowers, but a sacrifice will be bound up to the horns of the altar. And that sacrifice will be offered on that altar. And that is the reason. That is the reason that we give thanks for that day. We rejoice. And are glad in it, not because of sunshine, not because of tulips growing in our gardens if we live up north, not because winter is over, not because we have a vacation. That is not why we rejoice in the day that the Lord has made. We rejoice in the day that the Lord has made because the singular day that the Lord has made is the day in which that sacrifice is borne up to the altar and bears the weight of the sin of his people and suffers the wrath of God, dying in their place that he might then be raised. There is so much in this passage, just don't have time for it all. So much that is rich, so much that is wonderful. I'll tell you again what I'm struck by 
what I found myself thinking about over the course of this last week is verse 41. And I really have been reflecting on it and praying over it and thinking about it and meditating upon it. That when Jesus comes to the city of Jerusalem, when he crests the hill, the Mount of Olives, just to the east of the city and begins to make his descent down into the Kidron Valley before coming up into the city of Jerusalem as he leaves Bethphage and Bethany and crosses over that hill and sees that city from the Mount of Olives with all of the celebration around him, all of the people singing and putting their garments on the ground, having put garments on the back of the colt so that he could ride into town, fulfilling that prophecy. When Jesus crests the hill, there is this powerful dissonance between what is going on around him and what is going on in him. They're all singing and celebrating. The text says they're celebrating because of the great works that he's done. And what are the great works that he's done? If you read John's account, the great work that Jesus has done, the great work that provokes this outpouring of praise and celebration is the resurrection of Lazarus. A dead man in the tomb four days. Martha knew it. Martha knew the impossibility of it. Lord, don't roll the stone away. He stinketh. That's the old King James. There will be an odor. The reality, the specter of death is inescapable. And Jesus speaks a word and raises the dead man and brings him back to life. And within a few days, crowds are celebrating the marvelous and powerful works of Jesus. The king is coming. He's coming to his capital city. He's coming having vanquished death. But as Jesus comes to the city, there's no smile. There's no joy. There's heartache. And there are tears. And I've just found myself stunned. I don't know why this year. Stunned, amazed, mystified, trying to sort out what it is that is going on in this passage mention a couple of names to you, names you may recognize, names you may not recognize. Don Henley, not Dan Hendley, the one who was the pastor in Palm Bay, who was pastor to many of you. Not Dan Hendley, but Don Henley. And Cornelius Plantinga, another name you may or may not recognize, Cornelius Plantinga. He's the president of Calvin College. And he wrote one of my favorite books with one of my favorite book titles. Not the way it's supposed to be. Not the way it's supposed to be. It's a book about sin and the effects of sin 
and the world in which we live, that it is scarred and wounded and cracked and ravaged because of sin, because sin is pervasive and universal in its effects. And there's especially and especially appealing and compelling passage in this book where Plantinga gets right at the heart, right at the heart of what human beings have got to come to terms with if they're going to be able to read Luke 19 and see this stunning juxtaposition of things, this setting side by side of things. This is what Plantinga writes. What is it about sin that makes it so foolish? Sin is the wrong recipe for good health. Sin is the wrong gasoline to put in the tank. Sin is the wrong road to take in order to get home. In other words, sin is finally futile. Pride, for example, is futile. Because self-fascination is so often unrequited. Moreover, pride is subject to the tolerance effect, the law of diminishing returns. The more self-absorbed we are, the less there is to find absorbing. Pride is the first and most popular form of idolatry. But all forms of idolatry involve us deeply in folly. All idolatry is not only treacherous, but also futile. Human desire, deep and restless and seemingly unfulfillable, keeps stuffing itself with finite goods, but these cannot satisfy If we try to fill our hearts with anything besides the God of the universe, including and especially and in the first place, self, we find that we are overfed but undernourished. And we find that day by day, week by week, year after year, we are thinning down to a mere outline of a human being. And then Dan, not Dan, Don, Don Henley, singer-songwriter, original member of the Eagles rock band. You know, every once in a while, a rock and roll musician stumbles onto something that is true. The line comes from a song, The Heart of the Matter. And the line is this, The more I know the less I understand all the things I thought I'd figured out, I'm learning again. What's all of this about, quoting Plantinga and and Don Henley? It's about us. It's about us, folks. It's about us in this Holy Week season coming to terms with who we are really and truly as sinful people, 
people whose hearts are disordered, people whose hearts cannot make sense of the world around them, cannot order the world around them, people whose hearts are so profoundly and deeply disordered that something stunning and remarkable and overwhelming has got to happen to renew those hearts and change those hearts and bring those hearts from a condition of death and bondage into a condition of life and freedom if reality is even in some small way, going to be understood as it truly is. And I'll just suggest to you that a way, not the only way that that can happen, but a way that that can begin to happen is by contemplating and considering the unfathomable, the incomprehensible, the mysterious, the stupendous, the awesome. Boy, you know, don't we trivialize language? Wow, that car is so awesome. The awesome and incomprehensible God incarnate, Jesus Christ. I want you to think with me about a couple of things as we look at this passage. How is it, think about this, how is it that Jesus, who is fully God, God incarnate, God in the flesh, how is it that Jesus weeps while fulfilling the determined purpose of his Father. How is it that Jesus weeps in the face of and while fulfilling the determined purpose of God? Even more poignantly, how is it possible that Jesus would weep over his enemies. How is it that he would weep over his enemies? Here's the point. As you read this narrative, as you read this account, this so-called account of the triumphal entry, which you find in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12, remember that Jesus is entirely in control of this situation. Remember that. Remember that in the first place. Jesus is entirely in control of this situation. You must never see Jesus as the victim of forces or circumstances outside his control. He is the one who is in control of what is happening. You see it in this text. These strangers walk into a village. Jesus has told them they will find a colt. They find the colt. Jesus says, untie the colt and bring it to me. They go into the city, into the town. They find the colt. The owners of the colt say to them, what are you doing? Now think about it. Fair question, isn't it? Perfect strangers walk up to your house. Your keys are in the ignition. 
pop the door open, hop in the car, three of them, four of them, six of them, minivan, maxivan. You run out of the house. What are you doing? And the one behind the wheel says, the Lord has need of your car. And it's the end of the discussion. Not another word is said. Who's in control here? The owner of the car? The disciples? Who is the one orchestrating, managing, driving, coordinating, executing the unfolding plan? It is Jesus himself. You must never think that Jesus is the victim of forces outside his control. Three times prior to his entry into Jerusalem. You can read this in Matthew's gospel. Matthew records all of them. Matthew 16, 21. Matthew 17, 22 and 23. Matthew 20, 17 to 19. And then a fourth time after he has entered into the city of Jerusalem, Jesus tells his disciples that he will be delivered up to be crucified. And he says that his being delivered up to be crucified is in fulfillment of everything that is written about him in the scriptures. So Jesus is in control of the situation here. Jesus is the one who is coordinating. Jesus is the one who is managing. Jesus is the one who is directing. But everything that he is coordinating, everything that he is executing, everything that he is directing is in fulfillment of what is written about him in the Old Testament scriptures. And what that suggests and brings very much into play is that it isn't just Jesus who is involved here. It is the Father together with the Son in the mystery of their union. The Father having commissioned the Son. The Son having gladly submitted to the commissioning of the Father. The Father who then through the prophets makes clear through the prophets that this one will come and in his coming he will be betrayed. He will be handed over into the hands of sinful men. He will be executed and he will be raised from death to life. The Father and the Son are managing the situation. The Father and the Son are effecting and accomplishing their perfect purpose, their perfect will for the salvation of a people. And if you read John 17, Jesus' last prayer, his last prayer before his betrayal, not his very last prayer, but his last prayer before his betrayal, his arraignment, his trial, the verdict of guilty, his execution. In the last prayer Jesus prays, he says to the Father, John 17, 1, the hour has come. The hour has come. Three other times in John's gospel, Jesus Jesus is represented as using that same word. First time is at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. The party, the party is coming to a crashing, crashing, stunning halt. Why? Because they've run out of wine. Jesus' mother comes to him and says, can you fix this? And Jesus says to him, woman, my 
hour has not yet come. John 7, verse 30, when the Pharisees are seeking to find some means by which to arrest Jesus, the text says they were not able because his hour had not yet come. The Father and the Son together by virtue of their union, God incarnate, the Son obedient, the eternal Son obedient to the Father, coordinating, orchestrating, executing, in complete control of everything, everything that is happening. Pilate thinks he's in control. The Pharisees think they're in control. The crowds think they're in control. They're going to elect him king. It is the Father and the Son who are in control. Have you seen the film Slumdog Millionaire? Yeah. Yeah. You want a great, marvelous, stunning picture of the unfolding providence of the infinite personal God who is really there? The directors don't know this. The actors don't know this. The producers don't know this. But Slumdog Millionaire is that picture. You know the story? This little boy who is born into the most horrific poverty you can imagine. And luckily across the years of his life, accumulates little bits and pieces of knowledge and luckily ends up on the Indian version of who wants to be a millionaire. And the whole story unfolds how he picks up these little pieces of knowledge and these little pieces of knowledge become the answers to a sequence of questions that result in him winning the game, winning the equivalent of a million dollars in rupees. And do you remember, do you remember if you've seen the film What scrolls across the screen at the end of the film before the credits roll? It is written. Stunning. And the question is, by whom? And if you know anything, if you know anything, About Eastern mysticisms, there is no infinite personal God who inhabits the universe, who writes anything. There is no single God in Hinduism who writes anything. There are multiple gods constantly, thousands, tens of thousands of gods, constantly vying for center place, not one of whom is any of the things that the God of the Bible is infinite, eternal, possessed of all knowledge and possessed of all power and possessed of all goodness. Do you know anything about the Hindu god Kali? You don't want to know. It is written by the fates. The fates are impersonal. The fates have no interest. 
there is only one place where coincidences are no longer coincidences, where luck is no longer luck, where happily ever after is no longer a crapshoot and the roll of the dice. One place. And that is with the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, who is infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. It is written here. And it is written specifically and especially of Jesus, the Christ, who comes into the world in fulfillment of prophecies communicated by God the Father through prophets to his people and for his people. And he, when he comes, comes in fulfillment of all of it. Even down to the specific person who, in a sense, will set the whole chain of events in motion, Judas. Now, you want to dive into the deep end of the pool? You want to go down to the drain in the deep end of the pool? Wrestle with what Peter says in Acts chapter 1, verse 16. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. The scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Look, folks, there's nothing uncertain here. Let's be clear about this. It's not as though the God of heaven and earth, seated upon his throne in the midst of great glory, possessed of all knowledge and all power, knowledge and power which exceed our abilities to comprehend, our abilities even to begin to grasp. It is not as though the God of heaven and earth, infinite in knowledge, infinite in power, and limitless in goodness, it is not as though that God sits on his throne, wringing his hands, hoping that someone among those 12 disciples is going to be just stupid enough, just self-absorbed enough, just idiotic enough to cave into the pressure and betray Jesus. And then when that happens, the father heaves a huge sigh of relief and says, good, the purpose can be fulfilled. My friends, as high and as deep and as wide and as long as this is, the scriptures, according to Peter, speak specifically of a specific person 
who betrays Jesus into the hands of sinful men who then execute him according to the script. According to the script, it is written. And there's no uncertainty about it. There's no deviation from it. There's no question in it. And yet here is where the pool gets even deeper. And the drain gets even farther down. And it becomes even more difficult for us to comprehend. This is no mechanical thing. This is no impersonal determinism. It's not written in that way. The eternal purpose of God is accomplished through the true, real, and free acts of human agents. Listen again to Peter as he preaches his first sermon and reflects upon the events that have just transpired, events with which everyone present is fully familiar. The occasion is Pentecost. The Spirit has been poured out upon the church. Those upon whom the Spirit has been poured speak in tongues so that people who come from Parthia and from Judea and Cappadocia and Mesopotamia and all of the known world, people hear the gospel preached in their own language. These tongues are not unknown languages. They are known languages. They are languages employed by the Spirit so people coming from all of these cultures can hear the gospel in a familiar tongue, their tongue, their native tongue. But it causes consternation because not everybody can understand every language. Barbara and I watched My Fair Lady the other night. You remember the character Zoltan Karpathian, the linguist? He could speak 32 languages. If he had been here, he'd have been able to understand the whole thing. But there wasn't anybody there who could understand them all. They could only understand one or two. And all of the rest seemed like confusion. And so they think people are drunk. And Peter says, far from being drunk, what you see here is a fulfillment of what has been written in Joel chapter 2. And after he cites Joel chapter 2, and then after he cites David as well, he says this, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you hear it? Do you see it? The profound mystery of the definite Previously determined plan of God accomplished. 
through the free actions of sinful human beings in order that God's purpose of redemption in the death of Jesus Christ might be accomplished. Who's in control here? The triune God of heaven and earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working out their perfect plan of salvation. And so I'm, I'm left, I'm left sort of standing with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, looking down at the city and marveling yet again at Jesus weeping over this city. I'm a Calvinist. I'm not a Calvinist because Calvin was a Calvinist. I'm a Calvinist because I believe the Bible teaches these things. I believe that God is so big, so possessed of limitless knowledge and limitless power and limitless goodness that somehow in him, perplexing to me, incomprehensible to me, it is entirely conceivable that a definite and predetermined plan can be accomplished through the free acts of sinful agents. I can't do that. You can't do that. But this is God we're talking about. So that there is no question, there is no confusion down to the slightest of details. But here, here in fact, is the more mysterious thing. If I'm God at this point and I'm coming down the Mount of Olives, I'm looking at that and I'm saying, this is going to be tough. This is going to be painful. But this is the plan. Let's do it. But here is Jesus who is the incarnation of this infinite and eternal God, and he weeps for the city, for the inhabitants. A city can't do anything, can it? A city is just stones and mortar. It's just buildings and dirt streets and, and sometimes paved streets. A city can't do anything. A city is populated by people. Jesus looks upon this city, the city where the Father had been pleased for his name to dwell. Jesus looked at this city and wept for its inhabitants. Who being appointed by God to crucify him were at the same time the objects of his love and his compassion. How is it possible that Jesus would weep in the face of the predetermined, foreordained, definite purpose of God rather than rejoicing or rather than saying, Whatever will be, will be. I know what's on the other side. Folks, I guess what I want for us to try to come away from all of this with is a sense of the heart of a king, the king of righteousness, 
as he looks upon a world populated by those who are his enemies, those who would execute him, those who would crucify him, and would persist in his compassion for a people and endure the indignity, the wrath, the judgment of the cross in order to save them. What I want for us to come away with this with, what I want to come away from this with myself, is the Father's heart. The Father's heart for the world. The Son's heart for the world. How do we view our world How do we view people we don't like? How do we view people we fear? How do we view people at opposite ends of political or social issues from us? How do we view the world in which we live? How do we view its citizens? And better yet, How do I view myself? How do I view myself? Do I understand that I am Jerusalem? I am the city that killed the prophets. I am the city that killed the son. And do I understand that apart from the specific, the person-specific grace of God in Jesus Christ, I am the stones that make up the city of Jerusalem, not one of which would be left on top of another because of the judgment of God. As I head into this week, As I think about this cross, you know, I have to tell you, there's a rather humorous poignancy about the cross behind me. There's an M on that cross. My sin went to that cross. And you can put your own letter on that cross if you're a Christian this morning. And if you're not a Christian this morning, if you've not come to the place where you've understood that Jesus, weeping for sinners, weeping for sinners, persisted in fulfilling the eternal purpose of God so that sinners, who are the explanation for his death, so that sinners and their sin may be impaled upon that cross in the person of Jesus. My plea is that you would look at this cross and see your own letter there. And by the grace of God, understand that whatever your other need, whatever it is that troubles and plagues you, In this broken, tragic world, the deepest and greatest and most profound need is addressed at the cross. The death 
of Jesus for sinners. Sinners over whom he weeps. As you head into this week, as you move in the direction of Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and then Resurrection Sunday, may we together do that with a real sense of the heart of our King. Let's pray together. Father and Son and Holy Spirit poured out upon Jesus, empowering and enabling him, anointing him to fulfill his role as priest, offering himself as the sacrifice for the sins of his people. Would you, triune God, accompany us as we move through this week and increase in our hearts a sense of wonder and amazement at your being and at your love for sinners. Hear us, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.